Welcome to the Free Speech Union Podcast. I'm Dane Giroux. Today, we have with us Juliet Moses. Juliet Moses is a solicitor specializing in trust law, a spokesperson for the New Zealand Jewish Council, the representative body of New Zealand's Jewish community, and a trustee of the Esther Foundation. She is also somewhat of a cultural commentator, and most recently has started writing for the Australian Spectator, where she was honoured to be published alongside her mentor, a man they call the Brooklyn Brawler. That's Brooklyn and Wellington, by the way. Journalist David Cohen. <laughs> Hi, Juliet. Hi. Do you think he, uh, David would approve of that intro? <laughs> I think he'd quite like it, yeah. Well, I think it's actually fair to, to call him my mentor in a way. I've definitely drawn some inspiration from him, and he's a very good friend, so... Um, I hope he's okay with that description. (laughs) I'm sure he will be. So I would like to have uh, quite a far-reaching conversation with you. And I thought that, um, you know, I mean, this is a free speech podcast and Mm -hmm. we'll get there in a roundabout way, you know, Mm -hmm. um, on a lot of these topics. So I'd like to start and use as a springboard for discussion um, some of the pieces that you've written recently in The Spectator, which are really – I found very fascinating, very topical, very now, and very controversial and and really worth wrestling with a bit. So Mm -hmm. you wrote one recently. This was published on the 6th of November of this year called Sorry, That's Not the Holocaust. So where did that come from? What were you wanting to address there? And maybe just give the the readers, our listeners, a little bit of a – just a summary of your thesis there. Sure. So this – uh, really was written in the context of the controversy about about Dave Chappelle's latest uh, Netflix show, um, The Closer, um, and there was, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure <clears throat> many of your listeners will be aware that it's caused quite a bit of outrage. Uh, there were a number of jokes in there that, of course, pushed the boundaries and might made some people have felt uncomfortable, including one joke that's considered by many people to be anti-Semitic, I might add. But uh, there were jokes um, about uh, the gay community, about Asians, um, all, all sorts of people. Pretty much, you know, you could call him an equal opportunities offender, I suppose. But the the one joke or set of jokes that he made that has really got the most attention is jokes, or they would say it's not funny, but in any case, um, about the trans community, uh, the transgender community. And there was, amongst other things, a protest outside Netflix HQ um, in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago where um, a non-binary person who is actually, was the, I think the the writer, is it writer or producer, writer, I think, of the Transparent series that I never saw that was, but was very highly acclaimed. Very good show. Yeah, yeah. This person stood up and said, um, amongst other things, that trans people are suffering a Holocaust. And that really <laughs> pricked mm. my ears because... You know, I'm a Jewish person. I, as as you've said, I'm the spokesperson for the Jewish Council. Obviously, by the way, I should add a disclaimer since I'm also a lawyer that I'm not talking in that capacity right now. But, um, you know, I'm always very interested when somebody makes reference to the Holocaust and certainly sort of, or a Holocaust, so uses that word at all. Um, and... I think that word has to be used very carefully and sensitively. So I wrote the piece in that context about the uh, etymology of the word Holocaust, recognising that it hasn't always been associated with the Nazi genocide of six million Jews. Uh, But, yeah, so that was the context. And um, it was really, 
the conclusion was really that um, I think that word does need to be used very carefully. I don't think it was correct to use it in any way the word has ever been used in this particular context. And that, you know, trans people, what their experiences are unique. They deserve to be recognised and respected. But I don't think the way to do it is by sort of appropriating other people's suffering or entering into a victimhood competition at all. I have thought for a while that misuse of the term Holocaust, to me, I would consider a, a soft form of Holocaust denial. Mm-hmm. That's certainly what Professor Deborah Lipstad, who's the probably the leading scholar on this on, on Holocaust studies in the world, or, or one of them, uh, she would certainly say that it's softcore Holocaust denial. Yeah, well, what makes it even more disturbing in this case is that there aren't stats to support the idea that that trans are in in mortal danger all the time. You know, um, mm. there are murders, there are there is violence, much of it seems to be associated with sex work. And and I'm just looking at some US stats there. Mm. Uh, but anyone involved in sex work is going to be more exposed to violence too? Mm, well, yeah, and look, I, I, since, you know, we're, we're talking about free speech here, I mean, it's important to add uh, you have to be very, you know, I'm very wary about policing other people's language, but... Partly what I was trying to point out, too, is the hypocrisy of, you know, the the trans community is very keen on policing other people's language. And, and, you know, look, I'm generalising here. I'm not saying every single trans person. But that's certainly, you know, there are certain words now, even words like women in particular contexts, that we're being told are off limits. So we're menstruators or we're birth givers or whatever it is um so if we're going to be if we are going to or if they're going to be policing language then I think they also need to give some respect to certain highly sensitive words and very meaningful words for other communities and there is a lot of emotion and memory attached to that word for Jewish people. We, we don't own it, but I, you know, nobody owns that word, but I just think it should be respected and very, very sparingly used by other people. Well, I agree. Um, the concept of policing words, I mean, some people may try to say, well, you know, that is a free speech issue. They should be able to say what they want if you truly believed in free speech. But I think mm-hmm. that there's, there's, there's two types of word policing isn't there like there's people wanting to control the way you speak to preserve um uh you know something they believe ideologically or to even entrench a mistruth uh you know george orwell and would have commented on that with um some of the parts in 1984 where Mm. speech is is very tightly controlled to preserve Mm. a lie really yeah um but I was driven to those stats that I talked about earlier by the by the fact that I was disturbed by the use of the term in this context. Mm. And, and, and the other point I, I should know, and you're you're quite right. I mean, well, well, I'll, I'll just finish my point. So, oh, yeah, so, sorry, so, that's all right. So, the speech policing here, uh, well, you know, policing. I, I don't like that term, but. I, I, like free speech, I'm trying to get to the truth. Okay, well, you yeah. said this word. What's really going on? And, of course, the stats point <laughs> so far in the other direction, it's not funny. So by by highlighting the misuse of words, this gets us closer to the truth, which is what free speech does also. That's right. I mean, it's, it's the exchange of ideas, isn't it? Um, someone uses a word and you say, mm, not really sure that that was the appropriate <laughs> word to use in this context because it actually doesn't describe what's going on. And the other point um, is that what are the consequences for using that word? I'm not saying the person who used it should be thrown in jail, should lose their job, should be cast from public life, cast out from public life, anything. I'm simply, like you say, wanting to to get to the 
the accuracy of, of the situation and, and, yes, use words in the correct way. Well, if a word loses integrity, then thoughts lose integrity. And I, and yeah. I think that's sort of what we're seeing here. You know, by misusing words, you can sort of bend the truth any way you, you wish. Mm. So it, it is important that for the integrity of our thought in society, mm. call it out when words are being really misused and, and, and to, you know, and, and are being used to completely misrepresent mm. situations. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, another term like that um, would be apartheid. Uh, yes. Apartheid is associated now with the anti-Israel movement. Mm-hmm. And, and and it was so transparently just sort of reached for because of the lo- loathsome connotation that, that it had from South Africa. That's right. Um, it, it was really it that conjures simple. up a real sense of revulsion, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that, that's right. And, mm. you know, in the South African context, you really understand why. You know, mm. so it's being applied to, you know, Jewish self-determination now, which mm. you know, should ring all sorts of alarm bells mm-hmm. <laughs> for mm. people. But I notice now that, you know, with the Hipuapua stuff, the people are using apartheid there. When you normalize the misuse of words, you can, you know, people end up just throwing it at anything. And, and it mm. takes you no closer to understanding any of these issues, which are highly complex, like analogy basically is tricky when you're talking yeah. about conflicts. Like, yeah. oh, this is like World War One, or this is like World War Two, or this is like South Africa, or that. Well, no, these mm. are all very unique issues. They're very complex. Analogies, in a way, I think they're sort of uh, people try to use them as a shortcut too, don't they, to knowledge um, rather than sitting down and and, and think- really studying yeah. some of these uh, conflicts. Yeah, I mean, I think, you you know, both the, the word apartheid and the Holocaust or, or invoking the Holocaust is an analogy we are seeing that happening more and more in the context of the pandemic as well. And specifically here in New Zealand, what's happening right now, you know, with the vaccine mandates and the protests that are going on. Um, and that's also very interesting, the use of those words. And I was asked for comment on that the other day in the media, and, and the person said to me, why do you think people are actually using these Holocaust analogies and walking around with massive yellow stars of David on their back saying unvaccinated and all this mm. kind of stuff? And I said, I think it's just they're reaching for the most extreme example they can think of to try and maybe shock people into some kind of realization or whatever. I mean, I wonder if it actually works the opposite way and that some people might actually lose sympathy for for people like that. So, you know, you may actually have some sympathy for these people who are possibly about to lose their jobs. Um, and for whatever reason, they genuinely object to you know, having the vaccine or having the mandate or whatever. Um, but, you know, if they start saying, oh, I'm like a Jew in, in the Holocaust and this kind of thing, uh, you know, I, it makes, I, I, you know, I certainly lose a bit of sympathy for them. And and something else I actually just read about this this morning that I, I think was very good. And, and again, it, um, it was an article in stuff by Philip Matthews about the ethical issues around vaccine mandates. It was a very good article, actually. It was sort of an in-depth piece. And somebody made the point there, it may have been an ethicist, that perhaps for some of these people, and, and I mean, possibly this sounds slightly snobbish, but uh, this is what the piece said, that, that some of these people struggle to articulate the concerns that they have. And so it is kind of, and this is the point that you were making, like a kind of a shortcut uh, to to grab on to the Holocaust or apartheid or whatever as an analogy because, yeah, then they don't have to quite articulate it. They don't really have to bite down into it and really Correct. examine the – because if you're talking about vaccine mandates and, 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 and stuff like that, I mean, to really, to really know where you stand, you really got to understand the law – uh, mm. I, I'm not saying you have to be a lawyer, 
what I did the I did something the other day. I I promoted the civil liberties. Um, oh, they're not a union, are they? What are they? Civil liberties New Zealand. Uh, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know what sort of organisation they, yeah. they are, but yes, yeah. Well, see, they wrote a pretty fair um, summary of the of vaccine mandates and and, mm. and so forth, and they've obviously been wrestling with it. I mean, they can be mm. a little woke at times, but mm. they're wrestling with it. You know, they mm. know it's in their wheelhouse, and they and they're wrestling with it, mm. and. and I retweeted them almost as an experiment, Juliet, just saying, look, a lot of you are kvetching on Twitter. How many of you have joined this group, which is $30 a year, I think. Mm. They're actually very inexpensive to join. Mm. And are you pushing these people to sort of either advocate for you or, um, uh, or, or, you know, even just to learn where you really stand? Because, you know, Mm. there's lawyers volunteering for them and, people yeah. like that. And lawyers can disagree on all these civil rights issues mm-hmm. and, and stuff, but a few people like the tweet. But yeah, but when people talk about... I think I was one of them, Dane. Yeah, oh, maybe you were. You're very loyal. <laughs> I, I love that about you. No, but, um, when, but if someone has a Nazi Jacinda tweet, then, you know, they could get 300 likes. Mm. But, I mean, why, why, not, why not do something practical about it? And go mm. to the civil, if you're that concerned, you know, there's a bit of theatre here, I think. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, and, and by the way, the uh, deputy, whatever he is of the civil liberties group, uh, Andrew, someone, Eccleston or something, yeah, yeah. he was he was quoted in this article that I just referred to. No, quite yeah, I read that uh, this morning. It was good. Yeah. yeah. And actually they shared that piece too on, on Twitter. Um, yeah, look, the, the issues are hugely complex. I've been grappling with them as well. Um, and I sort of, I don't know, change my mind on it every day, if not several times a day. Yeah. Um, um, but yes, some of the imagery and analogies and whatever are, are off-putting. Hyperbole and really sort of inflammatory comments you know, they'll always be there with politics. There is a place for them, really. You know, grabbing people's attention, a mm. little bit of shock. But you're right. You know, you've got to be very judi- judicious in how you, how you play, you know, when you play cards like that because you can turn mm. people off. Mm. And uh, and see, the other interesting thing about the protests, I'll always support protests because I'm, I support mm. protests, mm. but the, the, the whole concept of protest. But, you know, as soon as you block roads, yeah. you know, you're going to lose a lot of people because that's what with the uh, was it the TPPA is that what you call it? Yeah, yeah years ago they, they started like, sitting yeah. in the middle of the road, and after that, it was like, you know what? Screw you! Yeah, <laughs> you're sitting yeah. in my road. I'm pissed yeah. off. That's it. You, your, your freedoms and civil liberties only go so far, and if you're impeding my um, my access from somewhere, then bugger you. That's right. I want to go home. I'm sitting in my car, gridlocked, and you're in front of no, in my work van. No, yeah, I'm not interested in anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's the risk people take. They roll the dice with that stuff. I've thought about this a lot, and 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 you know, in relation to anti-Semitism that we can encounter and stuff, and mm. you know, choosing when to jump in the trench against mm. it or not. Mm. Um, some of these people that you know really get our backs up in a way they're good enemies to have because you know they will overplay it and yeah they sort of ensure that they remain on the fringe really um mm-hmm. yeah and and the issue with that is that we often debate um is do we draw attention to it or not do we give it more oxygen or do we let it sink pretty quickly knowing that that person is doing it to get the attention and the outrage and whatever. So when do you when do you engage and when do you not engage? And knowing with us in particular and with the particular, you know, stereotypes and conspiracy theories that we as Jewish people face, knowing the risk that if we do bring attention to it and battle it, then that can play into the hands of the people who do traffic in those stereotypes and conspiracy theories and think that Jews are all powerful and control the media and try and suppress all criticism of Israel. And they're trying to suppress criticism, yeah. Correct. Mm. Well, but they're basically saying that criticism 
is an attempt to suppress um, their criticism. Yeah. Which exactly. is just not the case. Again, yeah. it's, I mean, oftentimes I find with the anti-Israel, when I'm butting heads with, with people there, again, it's about that words having the integrity of the words and the, and, and the meanings, you know, like just cleaning it up. I mean, I think there's a lot to criticise about Israel. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. to criticise certainly about Netanyahu, who I mm-hmm. thought was had well overstayed his welcome, even though he was popular, sure. you know, mm. and I don't live there. So, I mean, I can't, you know, mm. uh, we've got to be careful there. I mean, obviously people yeah. like them. But um, uh, but you, in a way, I, I, I find it a bit self-defeating, really, um, a lot of the people on the anti-Israel movement, because they're so wrapped up in the that that false presentation of the conflict mm-hmm. that that the serious conversation just that we could all be having just doesn't really take place. You know, yeah, you're waiting well, through right. so I many lives. But but yeah. I guess it's like the civil liberties point I made. It's like, do they really want to have a serious conversation about it? Mm-hmm. Or do they just want to kvetch? Do they just want yeah. to lose their minds over something? Yeah. Well, uh, and I think you'll find that a lot of, I mean, there's two different categories there. There, there are people who are viscerally anti-Israel, despise it, think it's responsible for most of the ills in the world, would like to see it wiped off the map. Um and yes, they, they probably fall into that category that they prefer to use labels and epithets and slogans and not actually engage in a nuanced discussion that reflects the complexities of the situation and the different perspectives. And probably in many cases, they're not actually even able to do so because they're not knowledgeable enough. Yeah. Um, and, and then there are the people who are critical, but of Israel, and that's totally, absolutely fine and to be encouraged, um, who you can have a a rational conversation with. um, And they do Mm. recognise the complexities and the different perspectives and whatnot. Definitely. I was was on a thread that Nandor Tanchos had, um, he actually used, uh, he shared something that I had posted about, um, you know, the, the use of Holocaust and 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 um and, and you know and, and I I wrote in that piece that yeah civil liberties are a real thing we need to mm-hmm. preserve them anything a government does we want to see tested and I used mm-hmm. the analogy of nine uh, eleven and said you know I had sympathy for um you know the, the powers that be at the time wanting to increase security and protect their people mm. but I equally wanted all of those uh, new measures that were brought in tested by the courts, yeah. you know, so so we knew that people weren't overreaching, you know. Mm. Um, and Nando, you know, wanted to share that with his people and um, and I said, go for it. So he did. You know, and there were a lot of really wacky comments uh, that he ended up having to contend with. And, you know, he, you know, he rolled up his sleeves and he engaged and he really tried to, to set them straight and stuff. But one mm. comment stuck out to me and it was this um, – woman saying, um, oh, yeah, well, I hear what you're saying, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Nando, I, I really do feel like a Jew right now. Mm. It's like, well, uh, you know, I think I, I even commented, I replied to her, well, a Jew isn't a vibe you get if, yeah. the government, if the government does something you disagree with. That's not what a Jew is. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like. Not a feeling. It's, it's not a feeling. Yeah. You know, mm. and you know, people are very touchy feely these days. I, I would hate it if you know people started self identifying mm. <laughs> every time some, the government did something they didn't like because that she was taking it into that, yeah, into that place. You know, and mm. I thought this is really disturbing. You know, you're you're not a Jew. You sh- you don't feel like a Jew. I don't I don't know how you th- feel, but you know, it's not like a Jew. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like someone who disagrees with the government right now, and and yeah. you know, and you you could have just said that, and that would have been fine. Exactly. Yeah, just yeah. use those words. <laughs> so mm. you wrote another piece, which is um, interesting too, and and that one is about censoring creativity, censoring yeah. creativity, and you mm-hmm. that you published that that was on the the twentieth of February, 
this year. So that's um, mm-hmm. a few months ago now. Mm-hmm. So what what was that piece about? What were you looking at there? See, about the issue in a nutshell of separating the art from the artist. So um, not, not the issue of um, when you have somebody who's, whose actual art itself and we might be talking about a musician or a, a writer or whatever, has some content in it that you don't like or don't approve of ideologically or politically or whatever. But when there is someone whose art might be wonderful and amazing, but who you happen to find has some objectionable views or has done something objectionable, in quotation marks, in their personal life or whatever it is, um, how do you balance that out? What, what do you do? Do you boycott that person? You know, do you burn their books? Um, do, how, how do you figure that out? Um, and it was what particularly triggered it, I think, was actually the death of Phil Spector um, oh. and thinking about, you know, his past and some of the issues around there, but but it just sort of sent me down a path of thinking about all these issues. And actually, my conclusion was really that um, you can't. It, it's a very personal thing for each person uh, to decide. You know, you can't dictate what another person does in this respect. Or you know, I don't think you should be demanding Netflix to completely erase a series because its producer, I don't know, said something or did something or whatever, and therefore all their art should be wiped from existence. I mean, you know, just think about some of the issues. Um, Bill Cosby, Michael Jackson, Woody Allen, uh, or even Harvey Weinstein, I suppose. Uh, You know, so... So there's a lot of issues there, but there's also things like, and, and again, coming back to an example that probably resonates a bit for you and me, Roald Dahl, who was a despicable anti-Semite, like really horrible, um, mm-hmm. and he wrote these wonderful children's books uh, that I think most, well, I certainly grew up on as a as a kid. I read to my children, you know, I bought all the books, um, and I did so knowingly, knowing that he was a disgusting anti-Semite because I wanted my kids not to miss out on that sort of magical world that he created. And yet there are other people that whose work I, I, I won't buy because I object to them in, in some way. Um, yeah. Um, so... I, it was really just me kind of trying to figure all this out in my head just and actually realizing, with it. yeah, exactly, realizing that actually even you know I've got inconsistencies and double standards myself in terms of what I do and don't do, and it's surely not for me to dictate to anyone else. And, and of course, a very obvious example in recent times has been J.K. Rowling, um, who. You know, again, um, trans activists consider to be transphobic. I don't see, haven't seen any evidence of that myself. What I've read that she's written on the subject, I think, has been very nuanced. Um, I completely understand where she's coming from, but of course, there have been calls for her books to be burned, and you know, people saying, oh, "I'm never going to read her stuff again," and you know, it should all be basically an attempted cancellation of her um yeah so yeah it's yeah exactly like you say it's just me really wrestling with all those issues there's there's a few different components to it for me um because you know i work in the arts um yeah uh, I, I write films and comedy and whatever where i get really disappointed there was a story about kevin spacey right mm-hmm. and a young director and this young director mm. wanted Kevin Spacey in his film because this is pre the you know revela- revelations about yes. Kevin Spacey. And anyone who was a young director would have felt blessed to have him mm. even look at page one of a script of theirs, mm. you know, because he, he's a great actor and he was a big star. 
Mm. So this guy got him in his film, but the film made about $8,000 at the box office because it was, it came out two weeks after everything broke. So that, you know, your first film is important. What happens to it is important. Mm. Um, that director, I don't know what's happened to him since, but when I heard that story, my heart broke having a having knowledge of the business because, you know, Kevin Spacey might have been the star and a star, but he's he's only one person on that crew. You know, there's yeah the director who has been uh, who may have dreamt of of this moment of making his feature film since he was six. You know. Um, mm. There's all the other bit players who might have, you know, they might have been debuting in that film. So they get cancelled too. Mm. Everyone sort of gets cancelled along with people um, Mm. in a case like that. Not all the time, but sometimes. Mm. When a show is taken off Netflix for whatever reason, if it's been running for a couple of seasons, I mean, that's, you know, that's kept food on the table of families, of crew members and all sorts for a long oh, yeah, time. That's true. So, mm. so I'm very conscious of that. Mm. The other thing that uh, about art uh, to me is that, and I, I might sound a bit woo-woo here, Juliet, but, you know, I don't know where my ideas come from often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tend to think, you know, and, and people like Carl Jung and that have, have talked about how, how interesting it is that a lot of the, our base, base myths and, and everything are very connected. And we've all obviously together as a collective, you know, uh, decided uh, to various degrees, what is aesthetically pleasing in terms of a film, music and so forth, you know? Mm. Mm. Um, so Yes, an individual is being creative, but they're also tapping into something very universal mm-hmm. and separate from them. Well, intrinsic yeah. to them, yet separate from them. I, mm-hmm. I hope I'm making sense. I'm probably getting a little weird and philosophical, but yeah, well, exactly. There's all these interesting questions. I mean, you look at all the Me Too movement and what happened in the wake of the repulsive Harvey Weinstein, Stein, um, and you know, the Oscars when all the women turned up and whatever they, you know, they were dressed in a particular way. I can't even remember what it was now to to sort of protest him and they were all horrified and making what I would call slightly hectoring or condescending speeches. I mean, they all knew that that was going on in Hollywood. Of course they all knew. But yeah. and, and to contrast that, with the treatment of Roman Polanski, who has been fettered in, in Hollywood and, and continues to be. Um, uh, there's also a lot of hypocrisy there. So there, there are a lot of double standards. And that's the thing. It, it, it comes back to, I think there will always be double standards. And it may be that because of this sort of balancing thing, so, you know, you might say, well, this is just... <sighs> his canon of, of material, that the art that he or she has produced is so incredibly important that it just, it can't be erased. And yes, that person really did some pretty bad stuff, but, you know, we can separate the art from the artist in some cases. But then in other cases, um, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's well, harder to do, or for me personally anyway. Well, my children actually they all struggle with Jerry Lewis. Okay. And it's really interesting because I love Jerry Lewis mm-hmm. because he's a comic master. Yeah. But in, but he was quite Trumpian, you know. He was mm. very arrogant and could be very nasty to people. Mm. I think he's got a daughter who has mental illness that was just on the streets of Pittsburgh or something, and he just didn't do anything about it while he was living as a millionaire comedy mm. legend in mm. Las Vegas and – you know, by accounts, he was, he could be quite a mean man. Um, And, but I can still watch him and appreciate the art uh, because he was a comedic genius. Yeah. But, but they can't, they can't, you know, they even say, I I, I can't do Jerry Lewis, dad. Don't, don't make me watch Jerry Lewis, you know? Um, And uh, yeah. See, for me, Mel Gibson is a no go. Um, I can't watch him, won't watch him. 
won't look at anything he's directed anymore because, uh, in my view, he is an, a terrible anti-Semite, a terrible misogynist, and actually just a terrible person. <laughs> and I yeah. can't get past that with him. I don't know why. But see, Patch Miller Christ is interesting because, like, I saw that and I did not like what he had was trying to say with it at all. Mm. But he, mm. but he is a brilliant director. Yeah. You know, Mel Gibson is a really, really good director. You just it's it's a tricky one. You can't and and you know, we we spoke earlier about the integrity of words and, and words having to keep their integrity. One that always gets me, I brought up before, is when people say, Oh, Hitler was a crap painter too, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, mm-hmm, he's better than me. <laughs> In the scheme of things, his painting wasn't one of the uh, the main reasons to object to him. No, no, no. <laughs> he, he also didn't like dirty jokes. I've heard <laughs> <laughs> he did like pet animals, though. You know, occasionally I hear that one. Oh, but the, you know, the Nazis were you know anti vivisection and <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. But I mean, mm. I mean the fact that you can be nice to a dog, but still be an absolute. I mean, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, people uh, are complex, and um, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. So, what else should we talk about? I think uh, what we were talking about yesterday was well. It's certainly interesting to you and me. I'm not sure how many listeners it's interesting to, but. The we were talking about why there seems to be a, a lot of Jewish people who are very concerned about the current um, what's the word zeitgeist the, the the whatever you want to call it wokeism whatever that's that's happening right now um, and for example there's quite a few Jewish people. Well, certainly, in terms of the proportion of the population in New Zealand, who are involved with the the Free Speech Union, um, we I think we were just talking about why free speech and individual liberties are free inquiry, yeah, free inquiry, free inquiry. Why that's important to Jewish people? Again, a generalisation, but but why? And, and certainly, if you look at for example, the people who are kind of leading the, again, um, for want of a better word, the anti-woke backlash um, in the US and, for example, who have just started up this week, just announced that they're starting up a heterodox university, the University of Austin, to, to challenge some of this orthodoxy that, that's going on over there. So many of those people are Jewish who are on the who are founding members and on the advisory board and whatever. And what is it that that why why is that happening? Um, I think that's you know an important discussion and and why um, the certainly the Jewish Council as representing the Jewish community has been quite vocal about the issues that it has with the proposed hate speech legislation as well, which I think for some people seems surprising that that a, a minority community would oppose it when there are other minority communities um, who are outspokenly for it. Um, yeah. So- I, I think that's a very complex issue specifically what you, you when you say other minority communities that are um are very for it i mean maybe there are majorities in some of these minority communities that are for it mm. but you know through the free speech union and some of the, the work that i've done I, I tend to be the person reaching out to a lot of the ethnic communities yeah and and religious communities and it you know it's not as black and white um, no. And I do. I am concerned that groups like the Human Rights Commission and so forth want it to appear black and white. Mm. You know, and of course, each community is always. Go- I mean, and then itself is. Uh, it's dangerous to treat any community as a monolith, right? There's always going to be a diversity of opinion within each community. Presenting any ethnic or religious community as a monolith is more dangerous than the odd yeah. anti-Semitic slur, to be yeah. honest. 
You know, mm. I, I really do believe that. And mm. sometimes I do think that, um, yeah, that can that can concern me a lot more than than some of the stuff that they think we should be worried about. Mm. Um, see, with with Islam, for instance, um, you know, I have a good friend who's an imam in the um, Ahmadiyya sect, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, they are severely persecuted mm. in, in places like Pakistan and so forth. They're not allowed mm. to call their mosques mosques. They're not allowed to call themselves Muslim. Mm. And, um, you know, surprise, surprise, he's concerned about hate speech laws. Yeah. Um, And he's got good reason to be because Mm. he's been oppressed by, you know, what what, what the Pakistani government would probably consider to be hate speech laws, Mm. (laughs) you Mm. know. Um, And and I remember when I was on a focus group thing for for this in relation to the hate speech laws, um, an Iraqi woman saying, I... I left Iraq to escape this kind of thing. I I don't want to be looking over my shoulder, um, you know, wondering who's heard me say whatever I've just said. Uh, so she was opposed to it. So I think it's quite interesting, certainly, that a lot of people who have fled from authoritarian regimes feel very uncomfortable about these proposals. That's right. And you would think that, you know, in some of the literature from the Human Rights Commission that there would be room to include her, you know, her thoughts, that woman's thoughts. Um, Mm. But you don't really get that. You know, they've got a very sort of, they seem to know what's best, really. And uh, I think that's quite a concern. Back to the the question of Jewish involvement and, um, you know, you know, pushing back against some of this, mm. um, you know, wokeism or so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, social justice is a very big component to Judaism. Most Jews have a charity that they like to donate to and things like that. There's a lot mm. of that going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that people would say, well, therefore, why wouldn't, why wouldn't more of them be pro the social mm. justice movement? Mm. Well, because it, it might be called the social justice movement. <laughs> But what yeah. I first learned is that, especially in the case, for instance, where we were helping speak up for women when they wanted to speak at, at, at public venues and the public mm. venues were trying to deny them and everything, um, a lot of the people that were opposing them would tell you that they were concerned about human rights, but they were actively trying to undermine these women's mm. human rights, like mm. our Bill of Rights. So. Uh, you know, once again, we get back to words being used and misused. You mm. know, just uh, free speech is a human rights issue. You know, mm. um, yeah, and and uh, it's about justice too. It's mm. about justice and and providing as much opportunity for people to participate in democracy as possible. And so, so that could be a good reason why many Jews want to, um, you know, push back. Yeah, and I think. What many of us are saying, or I'll speak for myself, what I'm saying is that wokeism is anti-enlightenment. Um, now, you know, maybe maybe it's well-intended or some elements of it are well-intended, um, but the way it's going about things is through a liberalism, through denying individual rights, due process, um, in many cases, science and reason. And Jewish people have become, sadly, we've had to become, I think, fairly attuned to those trends and fairly alert to them. And we know, our history tells us, that we always fare better in open, liberal societies Sure. Um, and yeah, so what we see right now, I think, or, or, or you know, we see an inclination in the in those who embrace wokeness of of you know exactly the opposite: a liberalism, not respecting the individual, not respecting free inquiry, diversity of opinion, free speech. Etc. And and that's hugely concerning. I also think with the the obsession 
that you see in, in, in wokeness of dividing people into the oppressor and the oppressed um, and this, again, this obsession with power and privilege, the Jews are being cast <laughs> as oppressors, as the powerful and the privileged, and that plays very much into those classic anti-Semitic tropes. Um, you know, Jews just simply don't fit neatly into that binary or into any category. And this is where you start arguing about, oh, but, you know, some, you know, Jews are white passing or they're not white or, you know, it's like we don't fit neatly into these categories. They don't work for us. And because it doesn't work for us and we can't be slotted into this narrative easily, then we become the enemy, essentially. And... And I think the other point as well that you and I have talked about is that um, we have a very strong tradition in Judaism, and this is very clear in the Talmud, of debate and diversity of opinion. and Questioning. Questioning, that's right. You're not told what to believe. You're, it, it's more actually about the process of getting to whatever your belief is than the belief in itself. Um, and that's just, that's our tradition. Uh, I think there's something something in that, and, and that is that um, many of these uh, movements that would, you know, I'm not saying, hmm, I mean, it might be extreme to say wokeism looks at us as the enemy, but I, I think there is a, a suspicion, and you're right, there is like, hmm, well, let's lump them over here with the, with the baddies, mm-hmm. you know, that they, they are doing that often, um, the privileged and so forth. Mm-hmm. Many of the movements that have really victimized um, Jews have been utopian movements. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the one thing a utopian movement cannot withstand is questioning. Mm. Correct. If the Nazis had gone, look, we've got this project, it's going to be fantastic, all this living space for Germans, ask us anything. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Like mm. Stalin, look, I've got this great thing, ask me anything. No, then mm. that's not who they are, you know. Mm. And mm. I think that Jews symbolize that dissent. They symbolize that questioning and that, you know, and look, it goes right back to, you know, accept this Messiah. Well, mm, not for us, <laughs> yeah. Mm. You know, except Islam, yeah, mm, doesn't quite work for us. Mm. You know, mm. so there's that track record of being offered utopia, and then you know, and, and who gets in the way? Mm. The Jew That's says, mm, "Let me think about that. Mm. <laughs> I and, have uh, questions. I have um, questions." Yeah, I just listened to a, a great podcast on this. Uh, oh, well, that touched on these issues. Um, Barry Weiss, who is is you know, I make no bones about it, I'm a massive fan girl of of hers. She's a again a, a leading young American Jewish woman in in this whole anti woke thing. Um, yeah. Who talks a lot, and she has fantastic people on her her podcast who who have all kind of suffered at the hands of wokeness or are challenging it or whatever. Uh, but she just had Dara Horn on her podcast, who's a Jewish writer. Uh, she's just published a book, something like Why People Love Dead Jews, or maybe it's just People Love Dead Jews or whatever, fairly probably. Oh, yeah, title. I read that title and thought that's yeah. a title. Yeah. <laughs> but she was saying this about that Jews, exactly what you're saying, Jews of, and I hadn't, I'd never quite thought of it that way, but that Jews uh, represent a counterculture. Um, when there are these sort of liberal movements, and, and so they're, they're othered, they're treated differently because because of that, because they say, hang on, not so fast, or yeah. whatever it is, um, we don't fit into this, or we have to question, we question this, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was a, an inter- interesting way to put it. I hadn't thought of that way before. I don't know if you're following what's going on in Poland at the moment, but... Um, but there's just been some nationalist protests, the ultra-nationalist pro- protests. So, you know, they've got real issues there at the moment. Um, and uh, 
what what were they marching? Uh, what were they shouting as they marched along? Death to Jews. And you think there was? Uh, I've just looked this up. There were three million Jews before the Holocaust in about 1933 or whatever in Poland. What's the number now? It's one percent of that at the most. It's it's thirty thousand Jews there, and yet they're still marching and shouting death to Jews. And it's actually nothing about. It's not about the Jews. It's nothing about what Jews are doing or not doing. It's it's turning Jews into this mythical creature, this scapegoat, um, this yeah this this enemy and in fact kind of getting back to what you're talking about before treating jews as a feeling <laughs> rather yeah. than actually as a fact mm. okay well on that really uplifting note <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get there in the end i'm sure <laughs> well we're you know we're just being jewish aren't we so you know what's there's a joke about um um, what is that joke? What do you call a Jewish optimist? Mm. Someone who thinks, or a Jew who thinks things can't get any worse? Yeah. <laughs> it, reminds me of, that, it reminds me of the joke. Um, uh, what, oh, how did it go? I don't want to mess this up. Um, there's uh, three Jewish women at a table. Uh, the waitress walks over to them and says, how is everything? And that's the end of the joke. <laughs> the Jews get it. You know, everybody else goes, oh, then, then what happens? It's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh, well, it's been fantastic talking to you. We could do one of these a day. It's yeah, just we could. great. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, well um, thank, thank you very you much for that. And we'll hopefully we'll have you back sometime. Oh, thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakitiano.